Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast, episode five. I am gonna have some guests on here eventually, I promise. It's not just gonna be me, but uh, I just wanted to get through this backstory piece for people who didn't know what led to where I am right now. Real quick, let's talk about training. We have a lot of training coming up in January. We're getting close to Christmas. Gonna focus on winter stuff, winter med, hypothermia, stuff like that, winter survival at the end of January, and a lot of training throughout the country. PhilCroftSurvival.com. Come train with us, please. Okay, when we stopped last time, I was starting my military career for the second time for want of a better idea. And look, people have said to me, hey, how come with all that experience, you went in as a private E1 and started, I, I had no choice. What else was I gonna do? What construction? Hated it. Was not, it just didn't do it for me. And I felt like I, I was supposed to do something different. Now, the U.S. Army in 1996, when I went in, was a very different place than it was in 2006, at the height of two wars. It had been, um, nothing had happened significant since Vietnam, really, right? Panama, very quick. Gulf War, super quick. Uh, Somalia, not a good day for the American military. And we had uh, Clinton as the president, and he had gutted the military. Terrible pay, terrible training. When 9-11 happened, we were, as a military, we were completely unprepared. We weren't trained properly, we weren't equipped properly, and there was some rapid stuff happened very, very quickly. Even special operations on 9-11, most of the gear they had was just regular army gear. There are a few bits and pieces of difference, but mostly it was just regular army stuff. So we'll get to all that. But going in the army, as I, as I pondered this decision and my wife supported me, I, I thought, look, freaking Americans are always fighting with somebody. Maybe I'll, I'll get back to, to, to combat. That was in the back of my head. But I was like, look, I'll go in for a couple of years at least, um, try and become a citizen and, and see where it goes from there. I had no thoughts of special operations at the time. I was not a US citizen. I had a green card. And you can join the American army, at least you could back then, with a green card. I think you still can. When you sign your contract, you have to become a US citizen within eight years. And I, I did, obviously, but it took a couple of years. I could not go to special operations. I could not get any job that required a security, like a TS security clearance. And I, I could not get any sensitive job. So all I want to do is be an infantry guy. At the time, I was like, look, I just want to be in the infantry. For my sins, they gave me what I wanted. So I came in as an 11 x-ray in March, I believe. Yeah, March 1996. Left a pregnant wife in uh, California, but she went home to Sweden for, for the duration of my basic training, which was great because I, I, I didn't have to worry about it, right? I could focus on what I'm doing. The The... Basic training and the US military and any military really, it's very exaggerated, honestly. The, the level of difficulty associated with some of these schools, selection courses, advanced schools, because if I exaggerate how hard it was, it makes my accomplishment bigger. And I, I've never, ever, ever done a school in the military that was as hard as people said it was going to be because it just gets exaggerated. And it's the same for basic training. People ponder basic training and wonder if they'll be you know, fit enough or strong enough or disciplined enough. It's not that hard. And they build you up and build you up and build you up over a four month period to, to spit you out on the other end of soldier and take you in as a civilian. 
Now, some people just didn't get how to play the game and how to be smart in basic training, but they learned real quickly when they did hundreds of push-ups. Mass punishment was a great thing too. So I came in, went to the replacement battalion in Fort Benning, Georgia, and spent three freaking weeks there getting waiting for the dentist and waiting for med because they want to get all your medical stuff out of the way they want to get all your paperwork straight get your id card and all that admin stuff be before they ship you to basic training to make sure that you're not distracted in basic training the replacement battalion was a hilarious place and if you go there i'm sure it's the exact same hundreds and hundreds of men all piled in there a lot of them very very young a lot of them very immature um, trying to figure things out because there's very little guidance. They do formations and they, but you have no training, right? So you don't even know how to stand a formation. And they do PT, but it's very Mickey Mouse. They're basically her they're, they're herding cats, is what the, the the drill sergeants are doing there. And it was eye opening. So in the absence of credible information, people just make stuff up. And the guy who was there two days longer than you, he's the expert. And everybody hangs on his word. And he's been here for 48 hours. And it's hilarious. And I just sat back and laughed because I was 29. And I pretty experienced and almost everybody else was 18. 19 maybe it was funny too because i had a lot of experience i had seven years in the irish army i had special operations been in somalia been in gunfights and i was a private e1 lowest rung on the ladder you had kids there who was were in rotc in high school who were e2s e3s pfcs you had guys with, with a college degree that were e4s specialists right and they would put them in charge by default and they had no clue what they're doing. It's not their fault. It's the way the system is. So I went in the army and I had no idea you could even get ranked before you went in. I did not know. And I found it weird because I, had, I talked to my recruiter and I told him my background. He said, I can't give you rank for that. And I was like, I didn't expect you to. But then I get to basic training. I'm the lowest, lowest, lowest private there. Anyway, um, we get in, we do all that stuff. We get all our gear and then we ship down to basic training. And basic training is a very, very organized event compared to the Irish Army. Irish Army was in my local town by NCOs. It, it's it's uh, it's mass-produced soldiers in the United States Army. And different MOSs, military occupation specialists, go to different bases. And uh, generally, you'll do your basic training in one spot and go to another spot to do your advanced training for whatever job you have in the military. I didn't do that. I did what what they call one-stop something unit training where you do basic and AIT all in the same spot in the infantry. The home of the infantry was Fort Benning, Georgia at the time, right? So we go in. I'm in a platoon with 30 people and, you know, four platoons, I think, in a company down there. And it, it, it's, it's pretty chaos. So you're in a big, massive bay with fairly modern accommodation, but it's like 30 beds all lined up with a wall locker and bed and all thrown in there together. They... They come in, I've played the game before and I've actually run run and managed the game. So I kind of knew what was going to happen, but people wouldn't listen to me initially. And then they started listening to me when I was like, okay, they're not going to come in at six o'clock in the morning. They're going to come in at five o'clock in the morning. Let's be ready, right? So it, it my goal going to basic training was to keep my head down, keep a low profile and not draw attention to myself. Well, that didn't happen because as soon as I opened my mouth, they were like, oh my God, where are you from? We were filling out paperwork very, very early on. And uh, 
one of the questions on the paperwork is prior military service. And I was like, I think they mean U.S. military service, but I don't know. And I don't want to come back at me. So I asked the drill sergeant, I was like, is this U.S. military service? And he said, where did you serve? And I said, in the Irish Army. And he said, I could beat them with my big toe, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Um, so as soon as they heard my accent and they started freaking, and I was older and more mature and and. They, they generally put those guys in charge. They, they started putting me in charge. Now, I didn't learn, I didn't know drill and ceremony for the American Army. I knew it for the Irish Army, which is completely different. The Irish Army drill comes from the British Army drill where when you march, your hand has to come up to the shoulder of the man in front of you. When you uh, mark time, which is uh, marching in place, your leg has to come up until your thigh is parallel with the ground and you slam your feet in when you come to attention. It's a very regimented drill. It's exhausting. I remember uh, in the Irish Army one time, I was in the middle of the formation and we were marking time. And of course, your legs are coming up and coming up. And it's freaking exhausting. So I'm in the middle, so I'm faking it. And because I'm thinking nobody can see me. And one of the instructors saw me and he pushed a couple of guys out of the way and he kicked me right up the crack of my ass. And that shit hurt. And it's a, it's a proven point that pain is a good teacher because I still remember that to this day. I, I, I have no script in front of me. I, I, I just talk because I tried writing down points and I can't remember all of them. It's better if I just start talking and go down rabbit holes and bounce back and forth. It's just how my brain works. I can remember stuff from 30 years ago, but I can't remember what happened yesterday. Welcome to TBI. So I had to learn drill and ceremony all over again. and But I picked it up very quickly because I kind of had that background, right? And so then all of a sudden they put me in charge. And they made me what's called the platoon guide in charge of the platoon. So... Generally, in basic training, they'll put a guy in charge and they'll switch him out. They'll have squad leaders too, and then they'll switch him out and switch him out and switch him out. They freaking never switched me out. They kept me there the whole basic training in charge, right? And I really didn't want to be in charge, but I, I was older and more mature, and I had organization skills. I could get people to do stuff. So the drill sergeant used to go home at night, leave me in charge of the whole company. And they'd be like, come up here. Hey, we need this this platoon to do this, this platoon to do this. Tell them to get to bed, to do all that, right? And I, I would get all that done before morning. It's funny because I remember, and my times might be a little off, but we, you know, we woke up early on in, in the uh, training at six o'clock in the morning, let's say, and we had to like clean the bathrooms, get shaved, get showered, um, do all these tasks, make your bed, clean the floors, all before formation at eight, let's say. And I got them all up at six and we did it all. And then we got gigged. The drill sergeants come in, flipped the bed, said it wasn't good enough. So the next day I got them up at 5.30 because we need more time, right? Drill sergeants come in, flip the beds, you're not good enough. Then we get up at five. And I remember one morning, I get up at 4.30 and I get out of bed first and I flick on all the lights. And this uh, this black kid, he picks up his towel and he's walking towards the shower and he's like, this MFR is still on Irish time. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. But uh, these kids needed discipline. They needed somebody to be in charge of them. And, and that job fell to me, which I didn't mind. I, I, I'd done it all before. Basic training was not bad. The human body and the human mind can get used to anything. And after a week or two in basic, it just becomes normal to get up at four in the morning and clean the whole bay and and uh, shave and then go to PT and come back and shower and then go to breakfast. And um, it just becomes normal. And almost the outside world becomes abnormal once you're, once you're very regimented like that. And it's great for young people. I, I My son is in the military. He's an intel analyst. 
and my daughter is in the Army Reserve, and I remember when she went to basic training especially, she came out a different person than she went in. She came out more confident, more mature, had a greater appreciation of stuff. So I think it's, it's I wouldn't push the military on, on everybody. It's not for everybody, but it's a great place to go if you're 18 and you have no clue what you want to do with your life. Because it's very hard to define, like, I'm going to decide what I want to do with the rest of my life right now when I'm 18, when I don't know anything, right? So it gives you the ability to go into the military for a couple of years, get a little bit of discipline, get physically fit, get a little bit of leadership training and come out on the other end with like 40 grand for college. It's actually a pretty good deal. And uh, I, th I think a lot of Americans don't appreciate how good a deal is because it's very unique in the world. And, and it's absolutely worth looking at. So like I said, basic was not that hard for me. The drill sergeants treated me quite well. I have to say, I got push-ups and all that with everybody else but there were times when you know guys were low crawling and practicing crawling they pulled me to one side and some of them had been in Somalia with the 10th Mountain Division and we sat and we talked about Somalia for an hour or two and we, we just BS'd and we, we talked about uh, they found it very interesting the Irish Army and jump school and all that kind of stuff special operations so they, they treated me quite well so I was in charge even though I was the lowest ranking person there probably but it, it's very regimented, right? You go to the NBC, Nuclear Biological Chemical Warfare thing, and you do that, and then you go shoot on the range, and then you do a lot of marching, and then you do foot marches. And, and like I said, the, the, the military was pretty gutted back then, and the gear and the kit was crappy, but it, it, it served the purpose, and um, it, it was fine. When I graduated basic training, my wife came back from Sweden, and she's, like, very pregnant at this point. She was at my... my basic training graduation and then I had to stay for two weeks or something of advanced infantry training which was kind of Mickey Mouse then I, I was done with Fort Benning and I got orders to go to Fort Hood Texas at the time Fort Hood Texas I think the biggest base in the world by land mass the first cavalry division were there I knew nothing about the U.S. Army so I, I didn't know but it was not a good post to go to. I, I will say that now for many, many reasons. So we drove, I had, a, I had a vehicle that I bought with money from Somalia. So after basic training, we drove down to Texas and got an apartment. It was so weird, right? At the time, there's so many things wrong with the US military and there's a lot right. But at the time you couldn't get on post housing if you're coming from basic training. They're the people who need it. So now I'm arriving there and I made E2, I made the lofty heights of E2, private E2 and basic. So I'm getting paid crap, like really, really bad money. And I wasn't allowed to go in on post housing, which really would have helped me. But you'll get officers who live on post. You'll get two officers who are married and both of them are captains in the military and they have on post housing. It is so jacked up. If I was in charge, I'd kick everybody over to rank E7 out of housing and I'd give it to E6s and below because they have no money and they are the ones who really, really need it. So we get to, we get to uh, Fort Hood. I remember driving into Fort Hood through Killeen, Texas. Any big, any kind of town or city close to a big massive base like that is usually a bit of a dump, okay? Name a base and I'll tell you the local town that's a dump. In Fort Bragg, it's Fayetteville driving in and seeing all the tattoo parlors and the strip clubs and all that stuff. And I remember seeing a big sign on the road there for like uh, some bank, I think a BB&T or whatever. And it said, 
get paid one day early. And I was thinking, why, why would that matter? get paid one day early. Why is that a good advertisement? Because I'd never really been short of money since I, I joined the Irish Army, except for the period where my mom was dying and I was kind of struggling then. But I quickly found out that I lived, I didn't live paycheck to paycheck. I lived paycheck to a week before paycheck, completely broke. And I had to take a gun. I had a handgun. I pawned it and got the money to get gas, to go to work, And then as soon as I got paid, I got the gun back. And I did that like a dozen times to try and get by. Um, Living off post in uh, Copper's Cove, I think it was called, the the, uh, outside uh, Fort Hood in the summer, in the heat with a pregnant wife. But I finally got my, uh, my household goods. They were in storage in California. I flew to California, rented a truck, loaded them all up. Because the Army told me it would take six weeks to get my stuff shipped. And we were sitting on cardboard, not on cardboard. We were sitting on boxes and eating out of paper plates. So I was like, screw this. So I flew to California, got a rental truck and drove it back. And I was back in three days with all our stuff. Not that we had a lot. When I got into my unit, very strange. Again, peacetime military Everything is judged off your uniform, your boots, your PT. And there's, there's very few ways to differentiate yourself from other soldiers. But we get there and I have a pregnant wife and they tell me, hey, we're going to NTC in like two weeks or something. I just got there. Now, I'm not one to get out of training. I've never gotten out of training in my whole career. But when you have a pregnant wife who grew up in a foreign country, and you're in a strange place, and it's our first kid, it's a little daunting, right, to go home and say, I got to go for a month to the National Training Center in California to do this training exercise. I went. I didn't even bring it up, but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have destroyed the U.S. Army to just leave me back and let me get settled. There's, there's, a, there's a problem sometimes in, in big organizations of taking care of the, the, the lowest people on the rung of the ladder right somebody it should have started with my team leader who's an e5 and my squad leader's an e6 and my platoon sergeant my platoon leader they should have been like look this guy just got here his wife's pregnant let's just leave him back uh but no how to go the 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 future of the u.s army depended on it i guess so we go to the national training uh, center in california to train for a month so I was in a mechanized infantry unit, so it was Bradley fighting vehicles, you know, coupled up with Abrams tanks and all that armor and stuff. And we were basically fighting the Gulf War again. We always fight the last war, right? That's the one we trained for. Later on, when I was in Germany, we were training to fight the Russians on the freaking, uh, you know, eastern Germany, right? We were training to fight a Russian invasion, armored invasion. But in NTC, we were training to fight the Gulf War. It was 96, Gulf War was in 91. So it was desert warfare, and I was a, a dismount, private E2, just a gunner, just a, a guy with a rifle. We, we, we got our gear, we, we railhead our vehicle, and we went out in the desert, and we just trained. There was a camp in the desert that, you know, you go to the trains, and there's like 20 toilets lined up with no partitions, right? You're just sitting there in the open doing your business, you know? And what always blew my mind is you go in there and there's nobody there and you're like, great. And you you sit down to do your business and then some guy comes in and he sits right next to you. What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> go sit somewhere else. I actually found a porta potty which I really, really was, was grateful for because 
growing up in a house with 14 kids did not make me used to crowds, especially certain times. But it was very, very old school tactics. And of course, I'm a private E2. I'm a nobody. And the smart money would just be to shut up and do what you're told. But that's not me. <laughs> so I spoke up a couple of times and they were like, who the hell? Because you do, you do a mission and you do an after action review and you'd sit down and the privates have nothing to say. It's all the officer and the, and the squad leaders who talk and the privates just sit there and hope they don't get asked a question. But I'm a private, I'm sitting there and I'm like, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. And I'm like, oh, I can't help it. And I get up and I just start tearing people a new one because that's how you learn and that's how you get better. And they're like, oh my God, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> there was one time they were telling me that we were doing a mission brief and they were saying, imagine four Bradleys that are in, a, in a, a platoon and they're in two sections, two and two, and each one has a dismount squad. And I'm one of the dismount squad people, uh, members, and they're talking about, you know, the Bradleys will stop, they'll drop the ramp and the, the dismounts will get out and they'll maneuver on foot around into a flanking position to clear bunkers and stuff like that. And they were saying the platoon leader, who's a lieutenant, who's been in the army for a couple of months, the platoon leader will get out and go with the dismount squad. And I was like, why is he getting out of the vehicle? I didn't understand. And they're like, because he moves with the most forward element. And I'm like, so you're telling me he is leaving a vehicle with a 25 millimeter cannon, two tow missiles and a coax machine gun that can do devastation? You're leaving that vehicle unmanned with, with an E5 gunner, that's it. And you're maneuvering to kind of micromanage a squad leader. E6, he's got 12 years in the army. Well, that, that, that's how doctrine is. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And of course, they didn't like that. And I, I, I got a lot. I didn't get a lot of people smoking me and all because I had more experience than most of them. I got a lot of people being intimidated by me and uh, applying pressure on me unnecessarily, right? Because I, I just couldn't learn to keep my mouth shut. I, I, that, that's a problem that I, I, I struggle with to this day. I, I got no filter sometimes. So I did a month at NTC, came back. Um, it's funny, when we were in NTC, they came up near the end and they're like, we're going to do skits. We're going to do skits on the commander and this and that and the other. And you're going to do this and you're going to do this. And they came to me and like, you're going to impersonate the commander and you're going to come in. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And they're like, what? It's an E5 that's talking to me. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And they're like, you'll do what you're told. I'm like, no, I won't. I'm not an awful lot. I'm not doing that. And they were like stunned. <laughs> they're like, oh my God, who the hell is this guy? So we come back from NTC. I remember we had to lay all our kit out and everything had to be cleaned, and, and which is fine. But the guy inspecting me, he turned my canteen upside down, there was water in my canteen, and he lost his mind. And I was like, look, my canteen, my whole career has never been empty long enough for it to dry out completely. It was, and I'm like, why? And it, it was one of these things that, that was just integrated into a peacetime army. So my first son, Connor, was born in Fort Hood. And we were on, we were so broke, we were on WIC. WIC is women, infant, kids, and it's it's a nutrition program like food stamps that you give to people of low income. And you know, I've never I've never been one to take a handout, but it was milk, it was formula for kids, it was diaper, I don't know if it's diapers, but it was a nutrition program that we really, really needed. We had no money. I mean, selling your blood was a fairly regular occurrence to try and make ends meet. We always paid our bills, but you need gas to get to work. And uh, 
not get in trouble for being late or, or, or stuff like that, right? So it was a struggle. Um, Fort Hood at the time had massive disciplinary problems, massive amounts of suicide, massive drug problems um, coming up from Mexico, I'm sure. And we did urinalysis all the time, a lot of theft, uh, a lot of AWOL. Like there was a soldier who... He won Soldier of the Month at a board, and then he went AWOL. And they're like, oh my God, even the good soldiers are going AWOL. And there was no, it's not like the movies where they go get you. They don't bother. They just don't bother. If you get arrested for something else, they'll, it'll come up that you're AWOL. They'll just discharge you. It's, it's, nobody cares. And that, again, that's, a, that's a, an organization that's built for war, that has no war, and is just sitting around trying to figure out what to do. Fort Hood was a great place for sweeping the motor pool. God forbid there was a speck of dirt on the motor pool. Lining up the barrels of the Bradleys that are all perfectly aligned. And uh, just doing dumb stuff all the time. That You'd be working in the motor pool and, and you know they had all these kind of ways to embarrass young soldiers. Well, I'm not a young soldier. And they'd say, oh, you need to get a trash bag and get an exhaust, a, a sample of the exhaust fumes and bring it to them. And I'm like, stop, dude, no. And Or they'd say, oh, you need to go and ask, go up to the supply and ask for batteries for the chem lights. And I'm like, stop, dude, I have more experience than you. Bring it, stop with this garbage, you know. Um, but it was, it was a rough place to be, especially with no money. And it was not... It, it, it was a little tough, but, but you know, tough times like that build resilience, and we, we got by. Within that two years I was in Fort Hood, I had to go to what's called intrinsic action in Kuwait. That was my first deployment. After the Gulf War, we kind of kept a huge force of vehicles and equipment in Kuwait, and we exercised this thing called intrinsic action where they would deploy a battalion or a brigade, I can't remember which, and they would fly in and draw all the vehicles from the yard and then punch out to fight the Iraqis if they came across the border again. Obviously it didn't happen, but so we're going to Kuwait. We get our desert uniforms. We bring my, my son is, is like, I don't know, less than a year old. And... Um, my wife is illegally in the country. Oh, let me talk about that first. So uh, when my wife came back um, from Sweden, when I was in basic training and she was pregnant, I uh, still had no green card. She was on a holiday visa for three or four months or whatever. So she overstayed that, obviously. And my, my thought process is we'll work on this and get it done. When I settled in in Fort Hood, Texas, I thought, let me get this immigration thing taken care of. I, I really didn't think it was a big deal. So I went to the JAG, the Judge Advocate General, the lawyers for the army. Now, I didn't know at the time, and of course I had no decent chain of command to help me. I didn't know at the time, the JAG's job is not for you. It's to protect the commander. That's what they're there for, right? Now they have legal assistance and trial defense and all that, but mostly they're there to cover the commander's ass. So I go down there and I explain to a, to a lawyer, my wife's illegal in the country. Uh, my son's been born. My son's a U.S. citizen, anchor baby. And uh, I'm a member of the U.S. military, but I have a green card. It, it's a mess, right? So they're like, okay, we look into it, blah, 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 blah. Then a couple of weeks later, they call me back. I go down there. They bring me in the office and they say, not only can we not help you, but we have a legal obligation to report your wife to the INS and have her deported. And I was like, great, thanks for that. Um, they're like, we're not going to do that, but you really need to get her out of the country and she's here illegal, blah, 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 right? Whatever. 
So I go back and, you know, a week or two later, it comes down from my chain of command. Nothing in writing because they have to cover their ass and not admit they knew, but it comes down verbally from my battalion commander to my company commander to my platoon leader and he pulls me in and he says, send your wife home until you're done with your military career and your US citizen kid, by the way, until you're done. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. And he was stunned and I said, I'm not doing that. And if you deport her, I will go AWOL and I'll be done. You'll never see me again. And he was like stunned. He was a piece of crap, man. He was a terrible platoon leader. He was one of these guys that had a chip on his shoulder about having a college degree. <laughs> we were in Kuwait and there was like four people sitting around talking. And he's like, I'm the one with the degree. And there was another NCO there who said, I have a degree too. And another one said, I have a degree too. <laughs> What's your point? You know? Um, but he told me, send my wife home. I said, no, not doing that. So I went to the IG, the inspector general, and I told him the whole story. And uh, they sent this lightning rod down through the chain of command. My company commander brought me in and started yelling at me like, we were, you didn't have to go to the IG. We were working behind the scenes to get you squared away. And I was like, no, you fucking weren't. You, you told me to send my wife home. How was that working behind the scenes? He was pissed. I was like, I don't care. So I put in for a thing called a compassionate reassignment. I put in for a compassionate reassignment, put in the paperwork for a transfer to Germany. On the grounds that my wife's illegal in the country, she can't get a driver's license, she can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other. It seemed like a slam dunk, denied, okay? And again, terrible chain of command, nobody would help me. And I'm like a PFC or an E4 at this time. No, I'm a PFC. So, denied, all right? Then I gotta go to Kuwait for four months and leave her back. So I go to Kuwait, uh, we fly in, we draw our vehicles and we roll out to the desert for like four months, basically. We there was a camp in the desert with tents and stuff like that. We stayed there, I can't remember, once a week or something like that, but mostly we were actually in the desert, desert. Um, in that camp, it was tents and sand and those uh, toilets that have a big barrel underneath and you pull it out and you throw diesel or whatever on it and you burn it. That was a lovely job to do. Turns out breathing that stuff is not good for you. Who knew? But it was it was fairly harsh conditions, but nothing... You know, I've been through it all before. Never operated in the desert like that, except for Lebanon, which really wasn't a desert. Before we deployed to Kuwait, we got a new platoon sergeant. And he said, I want to get to know everybody in the platoon, have them write up a bio, where they're from, where they went to school. So I was like, okay, I'll write it. So I wrote up a bio, special operations, <laughs> sniper qualified, free fall qualified, breacher, um, everything. And he looked at it and he said, why the hell is this guy a saw gunner, right? A private. And at the time, there was a freeze on E4s. E4s specialist or corporal, less likely corporal, but specialist. There was a freeze. Nobody was getting promoted. So they would filter out uh, waivers every now and again. So very, very controlled. So I was trying to make rank as fast as possible because I had a family and I needed the money. And I didn't like not being in charge. But so he was like, why is this guy not a team leader at least? And I'd been to Lebanon twice. I spoke some Arabic and we were going to the Middle East and nobody had a clue about the Middle East, really, about the culture or about any of that. So the platoon sergeant had a formation at the lake and they pinned corporal on me, corporal stripes on my uniform, right? Now, it was not official. It was what they call a frocking, which is pretty illegal. And they made me a corporal and put me in charge, made me a team leader. And I was technically a PFC, an E3, 
on pay, but I was wearing corporal stripes. So it was weird because I was in charge of E4s who outranked me and I was yelling at them and do, make them do push-ups and all kinds of stuff, right? So I became a team leader before we went to uh, Kuwait. Deployed to Kuwait for four months. Pretty good deployment, a lot of training, um, austere conditions, letters back then, no internet, obviously. Uh, wrote a lot of letters, received way more letters than I wrote. And packages and, and tapes of, of, you know, my son trying to talk and, and, and stuff like that. And that was hard. But we got back in at the end. We spent the last month in Camp Doha in Kuwait, where we cleaned all our gear and cleaned all our weapons, cleaned all our vehicles and turned everything in before we went home. The, you know, deployments are hard, but going home is great. And the Army tell you, look, when you go home, your wife's been running the show. Do not start changing stuff, Right. And do not try to take back over. And that's good advice, but it, it, it's hard to do. But I get back home, and when I hit two years in the Army, I, um, I re-enlist your window. You know, I signed up for three years. Your re-enlistment window open, opens up at two. So when my re-enlistment window opened up at two years, I, I, I re-enlisted to go to Germany. Because I, my thought process was, I'm going to get out of the States. We're going to fix this in Europe. And by the time we come back, we'll be good to go. Before I left, they pulled me out of the unit I was in because it was going to Bosnia. And they moved me to another unit. And, and it was just because I had a couple of months. They, they did a training exercise for Bosnia. And they made me a BBC reporter and they gave me a cameraman and we were, out, we were trying to interview soldiers on the battlefield and all that to teach them how to deal with the media. It was funny because I talked to this kid one time and, and uh, he was a private and all the, all the, like his leaders were like pushing him up there to talk to me. And I said, what are your rules of engagement? And he said, oh, I didn't come here to kill anybody. And I said, well, what if somebody, you know, shoots at you? What are you going to do? And he said, God, give me two legs, I will run. <laughs> and that videotape went all the way to the general because they were like, oh my God, we need to teach these guys. Um, again, did that. Um, at one point, me and another sergeant were detailed to get a military vehicle and drive up to Wichita Falls in northern Texas and get two soldiers out of prison, out of jail. These two soldiers had hooked up with girls through the internet, which is very early on in the internet. And they were in a motel room with them. And the parents and the police broke the door down, basically. And these guys were like 19, and the girls were 17. They're underage. And they arrested him for sexual assault on a minor and put him in jail. And me and this other E5 dressed in class A's, it took about four to six months for the army to get custody of these guys. But we went up there. And we went to the sheriff's office first, and the sheriff told us, we look at this one step below shooting a police officer. And we're like, oh my God. And he said, look, they're not in the jail here. They're in an annex outside town where we put all the sex offenders. So we went out there in class A's. We went in, all the crazies were lined up saluting us and all kinds of stuff. And we got custody of these two kids. They were in white prison jumpsuits with shackles and handcuffs when we took them out of there. And they'd confiscated all their clothes for evidence and they'd taken all their money but issued them a check from the county you know reimbursing them for whatever money they had on them when they were arrested they told us look you better you you, you should cash that check before you leave the county you'll, you'll have a better chance of cashing it right so we bring these kids into 
I think Western Union, and it was part of Walmart, in shackles and handcuffs and wearing dress uniform, and they're clinking and clanking like a chain gang in to sign their check to get it cashed. Then, then when we get back, I have no idea what happened to those two kids. The, um, I, I, cause I PCS'd, I, I left. After I left my unit to go to the other unit, the PCS, they were at Gunnery in Fort Hood, Texas. And they're shooting 25 millimeter high explosive rounds on these heated targets that look like tanks. Well, the gunner in one of the vehicles was outside the range fan. And he saw three heat signatures and he opened up on it. And it was two Apaches and a longbow refueling. And luckily the crew had walked away and they destroyed all three helicopters. Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. And then the whole chain of command got relieved because of it. Now, I, I'm all about accountability, but this this idea where everybody in the chain of command gets fired, unless there's like, there's a chain and reasoning why, what you do is you, you, you're training very risk-averse commanders who don't want to take risks in training, and they will just check the box because they don't want to get in trouble. And that was very, very relevant the whole time I was in Fort Hood. You do, you do like a squad live fire, and you put in a base of fire, and then the flanking element's supposed to come around, and they would lay out chem lights exactly where you would run as a flanking element. They had a chem lights where you lay down, and, and it was all so canned and so controlled. You can't train people for combat like that. Training is risky, and sometimes things happen, and you have to accept that as a commander. But we, we, we were training and breeding these risk-averse commanders who would not let us do anything realistic. Um, because they were pr protecting their career. So I PCS to, uh, my second son was born in Fort Hood too, Chris. And now I have two boys who are US citizens. I'm a green card holder and my wife is an illegal immigrant Swedish citizen, right? So we fly to Germany. Thank goodness we're out. And we're very, very home in Germany because it's Europe. And we both grew up in Europe and we knew it very, very well. And we had no issue. My wife spoke a, a fair bit of German. Um, her family could drive down from Sweden. Um, we could go to Ireland, which we did, and we, we did a lot of tourist stuff. I spent four years in Germany. And as soon as I got there, and I went to the motor pool the first time, there was mud everywhere. I was like, this this is a different unit. This unit is, is going to be good. Because um, having been in Fort Hood, where nothing mattered except the cleanliness in the motor pool and making sure that there was absolutely not speck of dust on the vehicles because they had to look good from the road and all the turrets had to be lined up perfectly aligned and it was ridiculous, right? Having gotten to uh, to Germany, it was it was very, very refreshing. And it was all due to the battalion commander, I think. His, his philosophy and his mindset was train, train, train. It was funny, let me jump back. In in, uh, in Fort Hood, there were so many suicides, they brought in this thing called uh, family time, right? On a Wednesday, or I think it was a Thursday, you were off at like 1500, like three o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody would be cut loose and you had to go home and be with your family, unless you were in the field. If you're in the field, that didn't apply. So what constituted being in the field was where the base was, there was cattle guards out into the training area. And if you were on the other side of the cattle guard, you were in the field and you didn't get off. So instead of letting you off, they would tow the vehicle out, the broken vehicles out across the cattle guard. And then you had to work on them so you couldn't say that you, you had to get sergeant's time. Like this is the mentality of the leadership there. And they wondered why they had massive problems with discipline and with drugs and with AWOL and all kinds of crap. 
but Germany wasn't like that. I was went to the first infantry division, and I got there as an E five. I made E five right before I left Texas. I went to the primary leadership development course for a month, and actually was very surprised. Learned a lot at that course. Um, ended up running that course way later on in my career as the first sergeant, running it for soft, um, and it had changed quite a bit. But I, I learned a lot on that course. The um, so got to Germany, um, got an apartment, uh, which is military housing, but it was off post and it was really nice. The kind of got integrated into my unit as an E5. Um, did some life fire exercises, did some training, and then we got a new platoon leader. And his name was Nate Self, Nathan Self. West Point grad, came in. And Nate Self was probably the best officer I've ever worked with in my life. In special operations, in Ireland, in India. Nate was a rock star. Um, and he exuded confidence right off the bat. I remember when he came in, shook hands, talked a little bit. And then we were having a platoon meeting. And one or the other, we were all walking into this room with the platoon sergeant and... and this other E6, he was a bit of a dirtbag. He said, no, sir, this is NCOs only. And Nate said, no, it's not. I'm coming in. And he pushed him out of the way and he went into the freaking meeting, right? And I've, t- I've told young lieutenants this and young platoon leaders and young captains and SF, look, they, they hammer into you in your training, trust your NCOs, trust your NCOs, trust your NCOs. And that's good advice if your NCOs are squared away. If your NCOs are dirtbags, then you got to be a leader. That's why you get the big check. Um, you've got to step up and man up and take charge um, if you have weak NCOs, okay? So Nate came in and um, he he basically took charge and he was solid. He was a, a Texas West Point grad and uh, he, he was a really, really good officer. And I'll talk more about Nate as we go on and we talk about Germany. Man, it's 43 minutes already. So um, in Germany... We, my daughter Dana was born in Germany, um, and I deployed to, we did a lot of training, we did a lot of uh, NTC type rotations called CMTC, uh, Combined, um, I don't know, Combined Arms, big training facility in Germany, did a lot of training, the live fire there was completely different, I remember the first time I ran it as a squad leader, Targets popped up because there were reactive targets. And one of my guys said, can we shoot at those targets? <laughs> and I chewed him out. I was like, look, when we do a, ma- a maneuver like that, targets come up, shoot them. If they're placed wrong and they're outside the range fan, that's not your problem. That's whoever set up the range's fault. Just shoot them. Don't ever ask me if you can shoot at the enemy ever again. I got the reputation of being hard squad leader in Germany. Um, but good soldiers liked me, and they liked working for me. And a lot of times, the first arm would take a troubled soldier who was going to get kicked out, and he'd put him with me because I'd make or break him. I would kick him out of the army, or I'd turn him into a super soldier. And actually, it was quite easy to kick people out of the army. I give you a counseling statement. I give you a task. You fail. I give you a counseling statement. Failure to follow instructions. I give you another task. You fail. This is being a lawful order. And I give you another one, and then I, I get a pattern, and I just put you in for a chapter. Some people are not meant to be in the army. What, one thing I did not like about the U.S. military was it's got this move up or move out mentality. You have to get promoted at certain time blocks or they kick you out of the army. And it's just not everybody's meant to be a leader. Some guys are really good privates, really good truck drivers. And in the Irish army, that was the way. You could spend your whole life as a private driving a truck, 
doing maintenance and you were damn good at it. You got a pay raise every couple of years, but that's all you wanted to do. That was fine. In the American military, they force you to get promoted or get or you have to you have, you get kicked out. I had this one soldier. I am not going to mention his name, but he was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Hard of gold, hard worker, but by God, he did some stupid stuff. And they forced me to bring him to the, the board where they, they test his knowledge to make him a sergeant. And they're like, hey, he has to go to board. I'm like, he's not ready. And uh, they were like, well, he has to go anyway. So I have to bring him in there as a sponsor. And they bring me in first. And there's a couple of sergeant majors on the board. And they're like, okay, Sergeant Owens, tell us why this guy should be an NCO. And I'm like, he shouldn't be an NCO. <laughs> He's not ready. And uh, let me tell you a couple of stories about this guy. We were in Kosovo, and this the winter hit, and it started snowing. And the headquarters brought us out snow uniforms, right? These over whites, pants, jackets, helmet covers, balaclavas, gloves, 30 sets. Of, of white, over white uniforms, which is phenomenal. They bring them out when they bring out Chow, and I'll talk about Kosovo later, but they bring out Chow and they bring them out in these big black trash bags. Little tip if you're starting your army career, never put anything in a trash bag. You don't want somebody to throw away. So um, they bring out all this stuff. They bring our Chow, we eat our Chow, and I go looking for these bags and I can't find them. And so I asked this guy, hey, where's the, where, where are those bags of the, the overwhites? And he's like, oh, the trash bags? Oh, I burned them in the pit. And the first time he ever took initiative in his whole career, he took the initiative to burn the trash, and he burned 30 sets of overwhite uniforms to a crisp. Like, you can't make this stuff up. We were doing EIB, Expert Infantryman Badge, and it's a series of tests, like 30 tests. And you get this little badge. Before the war, it was a big deal. And... On the land nav portion, they tell you you can't talk to anybody. If you're if you're seen talking to anybody, um, you're a no go, and you you just get you you'll get dropped. So I'm in the woods and I'm doing my land nav thing, and I run into this soldier, and he's lost. I can tell he's lost. So I go over to him and I'm like, "Let me see what you got." And he shows me, and I'm like, "Where's that?" And he's looking for a point. And I'm like, "Look, follow this stream down about 400 meters." about 100 meters off on your left. He's like, okay, thanks. And he goes off. And I'm, I'm checking my map. I'm plotting my next point, And I can hear him yelling, Sergeant Owens, I can't find it. I can't find the point you were telling me about. I'm like, oh, good Lord, man, you are dumb. I, we were sitting around one time at a training event. And I was talking to another NCO or an officer. And we were talking about, I was telling him about the Irish Army Special Operation. I was talking about retake and hijacked aircraft, right? And I was saying, you know, you approach an aircraft from the rear because it's blind to the rear and you put ladders up on the wings and, you, you know, you, 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 you breach two doors and you go in and overring exits, all this kind of thing. And this soldier, I'm really struggling not to say his name, but this soldier is listening on the side. And when I was done, he came over and he was like, that's got to be really dangerous. And I was thinking, and I was like, the airplane is on the ground, you know that? He's like, oh, that makes all the difference. <laughs> he was awesome, man, that guy. Um, heart of gold, but not really. Shouldn't be in charge of troops in combat, right? So Germany was great, but Germany had a drug problem too because guys would take leave and they would drive up to Amsterdam, buy all kinds of weed, and drive back down. 
And I did five urinalysis in one week one time. And we would do these health and welfare inspections where we'd lock down the barracks, NCOs, I lived off post, but we locked down the barracks and we'd go in and search all these private rooms for drugs. I remember going in and I said to one of the other NCOs, I don't know what drugs look like. <laughs> I'd never taken drugs. I'd never seen drugs in my life. I was like, I don't know what I'm looking for. And he was like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. had no clue. Really good units. So we, we deployed to Kosovo for nine months in 99 to 2000. So leading up to Kosovo, of course, Bosnia had happened and it was still Clinton and very, very risk averse. Didn't want to lose anybody. We rolled into Bosnia with massive forces and tanks and armor, all kinds of crap, right? I wasn't in Bosnia, but when we were going into to Kosovo, the Serbian army were, were committing atrocities against the Albanian Muslim people and they were fighting over who was there first and all the usual stuff. So we bombed them and we bombed them and we bombed them. I think for 70 days or something, we dropped bombs, like millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of bombs. And eventually we rolled in there. And the unit that went before us, they were there for four months and then we rolled in to take over. Pretty interesting deployment, actually. I'd never been into the former Yugoslavia before. It was frozen in time. Looked like it probably looked like during World War II. Tito ruled that whole place with an iron fist. And when he died, it all broke apart and broke into, into fighting. And it was being torn to pieces. The Serbian army were, were committing atrocities against the Albanian people. They were filling mass graves and all that. They pulled out, but they left Serbs, civilians, in place in some of the towns. Now, when we rolled in there, there was buildings on fire and all kinds of stuff, but it was the Albanians that were now getting revenge against the, the Serbs, burning them out of their homes and murdering them. So that was kind of why we were there. It turned out into being why we were there. So we moved in, our company moved into different places. A platoon moved into Jelani, which was a, a city, but we moved into a Serb village called Pastjani. We moved into an old burned out half-built brick house, uh, 30 of us. We had, you know, HESCO baskets around and security set up. We had no showers, we had no hot water, and we had no way to cook food. Um, and we had no heat. So it was, it was pretty austere living. We had porta potties. The platoon that moved into the city, I, I thought this was good and it always, it always stuck with me. The platoon that moved into the city they, of course, you're in a foreign city and you all the names are weird freaking Russian name, Russian sounding names. It's very hard to navigate around. So what they did was they took the map of the city and they cut the whole city up into a bunch of sections. And they named those sections in reference to where they are in the city, like a U.S. state, right? So the southernmost central part was Texas, right? The, the, the south east was florida the northeast was new york and they didn't split the whole city up into sections and called it a state so as if you were something was happening and you said contact florida everybody's flooding towards that southeastern portion and then you vectored them in closer i thought that was a really really smart idea and and i think that platoon leader came up with it and and uh, i might be wrong there but i i thought that was really good it, it's a innovative solution but we were in this uh, Serbian, I was an E, no, I went there as an E5, but I came back as an E6. The, we were in this Serbian, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Serbian town, and it was desolate, man. It was really, really bad. 
And our job was to set up checkpoints to do patrols, to guard our base and all that, and, and living out of this very austere location. So my platoon leader, Nate Self, came up with a, a rotation system. He broke it. We had four E6s and four squads, basically, and he broke us up into four sections, and we did a four-day rotation. So the first day, you would be on base guard at our camp, right, your squad. The second day, you'd be on mobile patrols and checkpoints around, around our area of operations. The third day, you would be on the checkpoint, which is out in front of our house, and the fourth day, you would be able to go back to the camp, Camp Monteith, I think it was called, in Jelani, and get a shower, eat some real food, and and use the phone, okay? And and so we did, you know, three days on, one day off, three days on for like nine months. And it was actually a really good rotation. The, when when my guys were on the mobile patrol thing, we would just go, we'd pack the, the up on the Humvees with, with MREs and water, and we'd throw all our gear, and we'd be gone for the whole time. We'd be out in the mountains, we'd be patrolling. We I just wanted to stay away from that friggin' house. It was miserable. At one point, the Russians were part of this international force. Russians are very pro-Serb and very anti-Albanian, but very obvious when you went on patrol with them. But they, they had this initiative that a Russian squad was going to come and stay with us for a week at our house. And we were going to send an American squad to the Russian sector and as an exchange thing. And they asked me first if I wanted to go, and I was like, no, that doesn't sound like fun at all. And uh, I almost wish I'd went now because I'd have better stories, but the, the squad that went, they starved. They came back after a week. They were like, oh my God, it was terrible. It was cold. Um, the, we starved the whole week, it, and they stole all our gear. <laughs> so the, And the Russians who came and stayed with us, we did mobile patrols with them. We went to the range with them and shot, but uh, they ate every piece of chow. We had a conscripts, right? And then they wanted to trade a lot of stuff. Like they wanted Gerbers, like multi-tools, crazy for them. And they want to give us these crappy little blue and white striped shirts, like undershirts that they'd already worn. I'm like, hell no. But it, it, it was a good experience. And uh, yeah, but the guys who went to the Russian sector did not do well. The, the fat Americans used to all that chow, man. They went there and starved. And the Russians ate every piece of chow we could, we could find. There was some violence in Kosovo. At one point, we went up to the school a lot, and we talked to the school headmaster, and we, we tried to provide security as best we could. But at one point, the school headmaster, who was in the 60s, he wandered out with somebody else hunting in the local hills, and Albanians ambushed him and murdered him. And we rolled up there as a quick reaction force, but we got there too late, and he was dead. Now, that had absolutely no effect on me, but that had a lot of effect on Nate Self, my platoon leader. I didn't find out this until later. When we were at the school talking to the teachers, there was drawings on the wall that the kids had done, and it was all of American stealth bombers dropping bombs on their tanks. Yeah, that's because they were Serbian kids, right? Um, another time, Serbs were driving up from, uh, Jil from Jelani up across the Serbian border, which was like 10, 12 miles away or something, and they got stopped, pulled out of the car, and executed. We had to clean up the mess. That was happening a lot, and it was all one way. It was all Albanians murdering Serbs, and Serbs, they, they were trying to drive them out of that country, which... I'm sure it worked. It was a horrible, horrible... They were completely surrounded by hostile Albanian Muslim um, villages. But it was all very, very, very medieval. So, yeah, a lot of violence, but a pretty good, pretty good tour. Pretty interesting. 
and and the ability to go to a part of the world that I'd never gone to before. When I came back, um, I was trying to go to Special Forces Selection, but I was not a U.S. citizen. So I, I'd applied and I finally got word that they wanted me to go for an interview. You had to go to a port of call. I couldn't do it in Germany. I had to go to New York City and go to the INS office there and do an interview. So what, how they did it back then was you, you, I flew back on my own dime, obviously, and I did my interview and then I came back to Germany and then four to six months later, I might get my paperwork. Well, there was a Colombian guy in my squad or in my platoon and he said, go in uniform and tell them you need to do it today and they'll hook you up, right? So 9-11 happened and I was in Germany and we we were immediately alerted and we were pushed to the gate because we were the only infantry soldiers on the base and we were put on uh, the checkpoint coming into the base and we were told to search every single car, 100% searches, right? And because nobody knew what was going on. It's funny because, you know, September 11, 2001, September 12, 2001, searching every car. People are like, oh my God, I understand. Thank you for what you're doing. September 13th, this is BS. I'm an American. You can't stop me. It took one day for people to get tired of it. And then they'd just berated us on the side of the road for doing our job. It was it was crazy to watch. We spent six weeks on that checkpoint, 12 on, 12 off, until the German army came in and took it over. And they did it. Luckily, I lived off post. Luckily, I, I had a mountain bike and I could come in through the woods in the back way and I didn't have to come in through that freaking gate. But uh, we did mobile armed patrols around the neighborhoods. We, we did, nobody knew what was going on. But... The, the world basically changed on September 11th, obviously. And, and we started ramping up to go to war. So I got, I had to go back to New York in like January 2002. So just a couple of months after 9-11, in around the corner from Ground Zero. So I get my word, I go back, I, I, I visit my brother, I take my uniform, my class A uniform, and I put it on, and I go, and I line up outside. You imagine the INS in New York City is, is like a big lines. So I'm standing in this line of 100 people, and the guard sees me from a distance. And he walks down, and he said, sir, can I see your ID? And I show him my military ID, and he's like, you're a government employee, you don't stand in this line, come at me. And he brought me up through the back gate, upstairs, boom, straight in. I put my packet up, and... Uh, I go sit down. A few minutes later, a, a lady calls me. She's like, soldier, soldier. And I look up and she's like, what's your name? And she looks and she puts my packet right to the top, which was awesome. I go in. They start doing all my background check and all that kind of thing. And I, I, I say, look, I, I'm, I'm trying to go to Special Forces Selection. And I'm stationed in Germany. Is there any way we can do this today? And I walked out that day as a U.S. citizen. I did a swearing in in the back office by myself. Um... It was great. They really, really took care of me. But I walked in that morning as an Irish citizen, green card holder, and I walked out as a U.S. citizen in like January 2002, just in time. I go back to Germany and I apply for selection and I go to selection, I pass, and I have to go back to Germany. And then a couple of months later, I got to go back for airborne school and a qualification course, right? So me and my wife and my three kids... At this point, we pack up all our household furniture, we ship our car, we got everything done, and we go up to the consulate in uh, in uh, Frankfurt or somewhere and to get my wife's visa to go back to to, um, to the United States. And we go in and they tell us that 
everything had changed on 9-11, right? And your wife, because she overstayed her visa, she's banned from the US for 10 years. And we're like, whoa. Now, I overstayed my visa too, and I had to pay thousands of dollars in fines to get my citizenship or, or to get my green card initially. And then, but the, because she'd overstayed her visa, the rules had all changed because of 9-11. And they're like, she is banned from the US for 10 years. Now, we'd already shipped our car, all our household goods. We basically had a bag each. And we're like, okay, now what do we do? So <laughs> we go back and the battalion commander actually took care of us. He got a, a rental car for my wife. We got her, uh, she got extended in the house she was in, even though she didn't have any furniture. She got to lend us some furniture. And basically I had to go. And I had to go to the US and leave her in Germany. I had to go first to airborne school and then the Q course. And I wrote letters to congressmen and I created a big stink. And eventually after four months, I got, she got a waiver and she got to come and join me in the United States. But she was back there with three kids by herself for four months while I was on the Q course. The first part of the Q course was airborne school. I had to go to airborne school and had to get static line jump qualified. And it was three weeks and it was absolutely ridiculous. It was two weeks of ground training and a week of jumping. Now, you contrast that to airborne school in the Irish Army which was like three hours of ground training and getting the freaking plane, stopping your baby, right? It's gravity. It's going to pull you to the ground. You are going to land. We push pallets and they land fine. It's not that crazy. And I don't care how much ground training you do. If your parachute doesn't open and you're going to be clambering, like it was hilarious. It was like, you know, turn and face the wind and, and deploy your reserve. Like you're going to be that, have your head on straight. Yeah, the Irish Army was like, they pulled a chute apart. They showed us how to, uh, land in water, how to land in trees, all that kind of, and then I said, do some some PLF, some parachute landing falls from that bench, all right, get in the frigging plane, let's go, and it was fine, but I go to Fort Benning, Georgia, and they got two weeks of ground training, and running, and jumping off benches, and swinging through these things in, in the air, and this tower thing, which was a death trap, and you're so much more likely to get hurt during the train-up than on the jump, but again, I just did what I needed to do, and I got through it, and got my jump wings and headed to Fort Bragg, North Carolina to start the Q course. All right, so I'm going to wrap it up there and I will pick it up there the next time because this is a good spot to, to, to wrap it up. If you have any questions, hit me up below as we go through this. I, I keep, I'm skipping big, thing, big chunks of things because I just don't remember them, but I'll remember them later on and come back to them if, if, I, um, if I think about it. The leadership piece is a big one for me because I've been through a lot of bad leaders and a lot of good leaders. Just before I go, Nate Self ended up going after Kosovo. He went to Ranger Regiment, handpicked to go to Ranger Regiment, right? And he was in, uh, he was a Ranger platoon leader in uh, Tora Bora when that whole battle kicked off early on in the war. He was the, when, when the Navy SEAL fell out of the helicopter, on, on top of this mountain, Tulltukagar, he was the platoon leader in the Ranger Regiment that went in to rescue him. They came in in their Chinook, they had no idea what was going on, and as the, as the ramp went down, they just got hammered with gunfire. The enemy had a machine gun set up and they just tore the whole, vehicle, the whole bird to pieces. Four of his soldiers got killed on the ramp on the way out. Nate got out with his guys. They set up. They did. They, they treated whoever they could. They got in this massive gunfight. Nate eventually ended up calling in a predator drone strike on the enemy position. First time it had ever been done in combat. And it destroyed the enemy position. 
he he went back he was he got a silver star he was like a war hero he was being groomed to be a general but ptsd crushed him and he was so early on in the war that the military had no idea how to deal with it and he got back and he wrote a book called two wars and it it chronicles the ptsd he felt and how it manifested itself and it's shocking because i know the guy and the guy's a warrior right but it destroyed him and he had nobody to talk to i mean he was suicidal and everything but it also it threw back to the old man in uh the school teacher in Kosovo, when he saw him dead, it affected him deeply. And that didn't affect me at all. So, so it, 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 that, that, and he got to the point where every new soldier he saw after this, he would imagine what they looked like dead. He had nightmares about the, you know, the Taliban coming to kill his family and all. And it, it crushed him so bad that he, um, he got out of the army, which was shocking. And he struggled for a long, long time. And he, he now does work for the army and all kinds of counseling stuff. And he's, he's, he's gotten back. But I knew him well and I knew his wife. And uh, I'd love to get him on a podcast. But he, the guy is a freaking rock star. But because he got hit so early, he's one of the first major PTSD cases since Vietnam, really. And nobody was there to help. And he had no idea. And it really, when I heard this story about Nathan and I read his book, um, he, he referenced me in the book and it's hilarious. I'll read it next next podcast. But when I read his book, it, it, it was kind of eye-opening to me because I was like, if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And and had he gotten help early on, it, it probably would have been a whole lot better for him. But like I said, he was one of the first guys and he was groomed. He would have been a general, but he ended up getting out of the army and struggling for years. So it is serious, but I, I'll pick it up there next time. Go on a selection, and I'll read that excerpt from the book. All right, guys. Hey, I appreciate you listening. Hit me with questions if you can, um, and I'll try to get to them as much as I can. And until the next time, thanks. Bye.